I learned that you never, never want to fly under any bird because its defense is to die. And one time I flew uh, not very close, but below a, uh, a pelican, a giant thing with 10 foot wingspan. And it decided to do a split S to get away from me. And it, so it dove from above me, spiraling, and came under me so close that uh, I felt the tail touch the belly of the plane. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I am your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 65. Thank you for joining us for another episode. I would like to thank our Patreon pilots. If you want to help us out on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash soaringthesky. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. Today, Dale Masters joins us with over 15,000 hours in the cockpit and over 30 years of flying. He has zero power time. He has always favored non-technical, seat-of-the-pants, nap-of-the-earth type of soaring. He enjoys making the most out of sketchy conditions. That is why he enjoys flying in the winter in Southern California more than he enjoys flying in the summer. Please join us now as Dale tells us about his journey soaring the sky. Dale Masters, welcome to Soaring the Sky. So happy to have you today. How are you? Good, thank you. Glad to be here. So where are you flying out of? Well, it's called Crystal. It's a small, very small airport with almost no pavement. It's just north of the big mountains that are north of Los Angeles. So even though we're only just, oh, maybe 30 miles from City Hall, it's high desert, and it might as well be West Texas. And there's almost no L.A. There's no air traffic to speak of. It's just uh, out, out in the desert. It is a beautiful place. I was fortunate enough to be able to fly and fly with you. That was an awesome experience. And it was my first time experiencing big thermals in the West. And it, it was great. So thank you for that. I'll tell you, I found this place by research. I was flying in New England, loving the place and hating the climate. And I did research before the days of the internet to find what I thought would be the best soaring site for year round in North America and chose Crystal and moved here without seeing the place. And I think I was right. It's the best place year round for any particular day of the year. Just go and probably have fun. Well, you know, and when I was flying with you, it was like we couldn't come down. I mean, you had to put the air brakes out. We, I felt like we could stay up there all day. And that was winter, right? Yeah, it was It was March, so it wasn't even getting into the, really, the yeah. soaring season. At, at Crystal here, between middle of March and middle of October, which is seven months, is almost every single day there will be good thermals, and if not, there will be some other form of lift. So it's soarable every day for seven months. Wow, that is awesome. In fact, I kept track one year. One period of almost two years, we had no unflyable days. For It was like 23 months of no unflyable days. That is incredible. 
Yeah. And Dale, how did your aviation journey begin? I took a glider ride once. I was about 24 and uh, took a half hour glider ride and it blew my mind. And I never have taken another ride. For years, I would promise my students, if you get your license, you can take me on my second flight, my second ride. So you went right into it after that? Well, yeah. It was a one winter pass, just waiting for the rain to stop. I was up in Oregon. And uh, I was there the first day they opened for the next season. And that was 1975. So where did your journey take you after that? Well, uh, after two years of very little flying, just, you know, real beginner stuff, I made a a stupid mistake I, I won't get into right now, but I uh, had a seven-minute flight that scared the hell out of me, and I uh, realized I'm not smart enough for this, and I quit for two years. And two years later, I had moved to New England and found that every morning, first thing I would do is get up and run to the window to see what the weather was like for soaring. So I knew I had to get back into it. Can you tell me about that seven-minute flight? Well, okay, I had... Uh, I, I was cocky. I probably had, uh, well, I know it was less than 50 hours total time. And I saw all these good pilots getting off low and climbing away. So I'm going to do that. First bump on the toe, I'm going to get off. And uh, I looked later, I realized I'd gotten off at 700 feet. And uh, I made one turn and it was sink. And suddenly I'm a lot lower than that. And then I made the mistake of flying a pattern which was just the worst thing to do and wound up having to do a slipping turn to get between two pine trees to get to the threshold. And when I landed, I was just entering a spin as I, as I landed. In oh, the wow. And the, uh, the owner of the plane said he'd never seen anyone come so close to killing himself. So I figured I better quit this. While oh, it's going live. So you set it out for two years and then what happened? I, Saw a glider in the air and couldn't resist. And wound up uh, flying there 16 years. That was northern Vermont. Uh, the, the famous place up there is Sugarbush, and we were silver distance north of Sugarbush uh, at a small airport that's uh, now no longer a glider port. So from Vermont, did you go straight to California? Uh, okay, after 16 years in Vermont, the, the reason I left was not that I didn't love it, but I'd stopped learning. I pretty much learned whatever was to be learned there. And I wanted to have a broader soaring experience. And I chose Crystal, but uh, at first I moved to Pennsylvania and spent seven months there and didn't really fly much. And then finally had my, my chance and came out to Crystal. I knew coming up the driveway that you know, I'm going to live here till I pass away. So you checked out the soaring conditions in different parts of the country. Is that that's how you found Crystal? Well, mostly just through research before the internet, just looking into it, reading, you know, lots of reading. You know, there's a lot of great places to fly, but I don't think any are as good year round every day of the year as this place. Another one of the measures I, I used again before the internet, I would look at the at this site and geographically and think, okay, well, what is the highest slope, the highest peak near the airport. And if it's got a big peak near the airport, it's probably a pretty good place for gliders. And uh, there's, I think the only place I know of that has glider activity with a higher hill closer to the airport is Telluride, Colorado. And uh, that has its own sets of issues. Very high altitude for one thing and uh, a lot of winter.
that's the beauty here. We don't get much winter. So when I was flying with you, you were showing me how to ride a thermal with just a rudder. So can you tell me about that and what your technique is? Okay. It's uh, unconventional, and a lot of people listening may uh, may uh, lose their minds, but it works. So I, I do it. Um, and I, I discovered it, by the way, by just noticing what I was doing and then realizing it seems to work. And then it took years to first sort of analyze why it works so well. But basically, the, the uh, concept is if you're in a bank, rudder can control all three axes of control, roll, pitch, and yaw in a bank. And so if you're in the thermal and you use aileron to control your bank, adverse yaw will change your direction and you'll lose the lift. But if you use rudder to control your bank and your direction, it just helps you stay in the stronger lift, especially if it's a dynamic thermal. If it's broad, weak lift, it doesn't. my method doesn't really help. But uh, I'm thoroughly convinced, and my former students are convinced, that, yeah, mostly rudder and very little aileron is the way to stay in a, a feisty thermal. And it does work. I'm a witness to that. It's the first time I'd ever seen that technique used. It's not any more difficult, really. It just, uh, it's not sort of natural mentally, and so it takes a while to get used to it. But for me, it's a habit. I basically fly with my feet in thermals. Now, I know you've written a book about soaring. Can you tell me about that? Well, okay. What I noticed was after maybe 10 years of instructing, I was teaching a lot of things that I'd learned that I hadn't been taught. And uh, so I started writing those down, and that became about a 200-page book that's been out now for over 10 years. Um, and it's just basically the beyond the fundamentals. It's intermediate stuff for people that have glider training but no experience. And it seemed to me that there's nothing like that available, so I made it available. Could we get a copy of that if we would want to do that? Presently, it's kind of almost out of print. We still have a box of copies at the airport, but uh, there's never been enough market for that sort of thing to print large volumes of it. And so right now it's probably not available on the market except at our airport. I definitely would like to get a copy now. That would be great. I'd appreciate that. If someone were to want a copy, would there be a way that they could get a hold of you? Well, yeah, let's see, probably through the airport. So let's, let's say just go to uh, soaringacademy.org. Okay, or SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. What has been one of the coolest and strangest things maybe you've seen from the cockpit in all your flying? I know you've done a lot of flying. Well, coolest and strangest. Um, one of the first things comes to mind, I did stumble across a uh, paraglider flying without a pilot about 10,000 feet. Oh, wow. But that's all it was, was just a pile of laundry floating in the air. We circled it once and moved on. I couldn't help looking down as it to, to find someone falling from it, but uh, it was two miles down, so there's no no way to see that. And uh, oh my, you know, I've had many very interesting contacts with birds aloft. Hawks, eagles. Well, in some places you'll fly with hawks or eagles every flight. Uh, here at Crystal, we don't see them very often. But at one uh, at Tehachapi, about 50 miles from Crystal, I was flying three years. We had hawks and actually eagles on almost every flight with thermals there'd be an eagle there 
I remember one time it was spring and I'd been watching these two fledgling eagles. And on my day off, I took a 126 and went hunting for those eagles and found them. And these two very young fledglings, they were thermaling, and I forced the 126 between them, and we went up to 12,000 feet with an eagle off each wing tip. That was pretty cool. 12,000 feet, wow. I learned that you never, never want to fly under any bird because its defense is to dive. And one time I flew uh, not very close, but below a, uh, a pelican, a giant thing with 10-foot wingspan, and it decided to do a split S to get away from me. And it so it dove from above me, spiraling, and came under me so close that uh, I felt the tail touch the belly of the plane. Mm. That was the rare case of a pelican flying by itself. And there was a flock of pelicans nearby. And so after that contact, it just headed straight for the flock. But I've, I've learned to never, never pursue migrating birds because it breaks up their their uh, migration and they waste energy trying to get away from you. Yeah. Flew into a V of ducks once. That was pretty cool. And the, the two sides of the V separated. They were in wave climbing. And uh, so the two lines of the V separated to get away from me. And I followed one line in a circle. And after a circle, the two lines rejoined perfectly. But by then I'd fallen away and they just climbed on up and disappeared. Yeah, flying with birds is about as beautiful as it can get. Hi, it's Natalie Flygirl Kelly. And Fly Alyssa. We are female pilots, aviation lovers, and hosts of the podcast, Cockpits and Cocktails. We use this podcast as a way of sharing our journeys in aviation and allowing other females in aviation to share their amazing, inspiring stories as well. Please give us a listen and join us for this fun, informative podcast with adventure and humor weaved in. Blue skies. Cheers. Have you ever landed out and maybe it didn't turn out the way you expected, good or bad? <laughs> well, yeah, I've landed out a few times. Um, and I think the one worth talking about would be the one I claim is my worst landing ever. Uh, didn't have to be that way. I put it on myself. I could have landed at a big paved airport, but I didn't want to and ended up having to uh, just dash for a dirt strip landing. And then at the last moment, because it was going to be uh, – like a very strong crosswind. At the last moment, I saw what looked like another option, so I changed strips. And we were probably at 100 feet at that point, or less, and uh, wound up landing in a construction site. And what it, I would have demolished the glider, but being very experienced at taxiing, I got it through the construction site with nothing more than a scratched wingtip. And... Uh, uh, when immediately, as soon as we got out of the plane, someone came running up and I asked him, how did you know we were here? He said, I saw a giant cloud of dust. Oh, my goodness. And he, he thought he was coming to witness a grisly crash. And it was just my skill at taxiing that kept us safe because it was definitely my worst landing ever. Oh, wow. And I was with a, uh, a student, a solo level student, a naval aviator, very serious student. And that was his last flight. Oh, really? He didn't come back. He'd seen enough. See, I think my value to soaring as a community, my value is the fact that I was never really trained. I'm self-trained, a real ignoramus. And I got away with so much so early in, in my soaring career that I'm one of the few people that's made all the mistakes and somehow gotten away with it. 
And so now what I do is each week I tell a story of something really stupid that I've done and got away with. And I've had some of my former students say, you couldn't have been that stupid. Well, yeah, I was. Well, you're here to talk about it and to share what not to do. So that's good. Yep. That's really the point is to share it. Absolutely. Even if, you know, those stories that you maybe are like, well, I really don't want to share that story because I'm embarrassed or, but there's no reason to, because someone can learn from that story. Yep. Because we've all had those times where we did something, well, I probably shouldn't have done that. I, I lived through it, but probably shouldn't have made that decision. Well, and in soaring, is, is the way I think of it, there's a million ways to do the wrong thing and usually one or two good choices available. So it's easy to make mistakes. And the worst mistake is to not remember your mistakes and make them again. So can you tell me about one of your longest flights where you were flying and how long you stayed out? Yeah, well, I don't have uh, the longest flights all sort of cataloged in memory. All the longest flights are on the order of eight hours or so. And most of them are fairly unremarkable other than the fact that it's just amazing soaring in the Southwest. But... uh, I'll tell you about the one that I think of as my favorite flight, and I haven't written about it yet because it's too long a story. It was mid-season, great conditions up at Lone Pine, which is the Owens Valley. For those who don't know about the Owens Valley, it's basically nirvana. It's just soaring nirvana, muscle-bound landscape with unbelievable conditions. And so that morning, I was pushing out to take off. And I I wanted to be the first to launch because I wanted to make a a very long flight. And so we were going first and an old timer was helping me walk on my other wing and uh, asked me what we were going to do. And I arrogantly said, we're going to go for a 500 mile circuit. Well, I meant to say a 500 kilometer circuit, but I'd said mile and he caught me on that and he challenged me. And then I was dumb enough to just stick with it, to not walk it back. Now I'm committed to make a 500-mile circuit. And the day began with the first tow, and I couldn't find lift. We towed very high on this huge mountain east of town, just started working our way down. Other people would tow up and fly away, and we were just still coming down. And we went nap of the earth down a 9,000-foot slope across the valley at very low altitude, almost landed. And then up the other side of the valley, which is Mount Whitney, to 14,000 feet. But the whole time, we were basically at nearly ground level before we finally got up away from the ground and started our flight. We'd been in the air three hours before we finally got free of the ground. And then we did about a 300-mile flight before coming back. And sure enough, we landed after dark. We were certainly the longest flight that day, but mostly just many, many hours of of misadventures and unexpected problems, which made it, in the end, my favorite flight. Also, the fact that it was with my girlfriend, who was a uh, student pilot, that added quite a bit of spice to it. (laughs) Right. And at one point, at the far end of that flight, midday, we were out in western Nevada, just really high and going fast. You know, if, if it's that good, in midsummer conditions, you might be cruising at like 17, 18,000 feet, uh, having to go slower in in the sink just to stay down and speeding up in the lift just to stay down. And we were doing that. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, jets came by. We were head to head. We came through a flight of four jets. 
so close that I saw a helmet on my right and my girlfriend saw a helmet on her left. Oh. That's how close we were in their formation. And they were coming awful fast, like absurdly fast. And I started realizing, you know, altimeter says 17.5. It's really hot. We're probably at 19.5 because the altimeter reads lower as you get higher in very hot air. So, yeah, I think we were above 18,000 when they came through us. And uh, I just hit uh, full spoilers and spiraled down and hope they uh, hope they don't come find us. So there was a lot of more misadventure in that one longest flight, but that's uh, the most memorable moment of it. And I tell you, those jets get really loud the moment they pass beyond you. And now our soaring safety segment with some advice from an upcoming guest, Bill Daniels. Never pass up an opportunity to get more training. You know, the airlines have a six-month retraining schedule where all the flight crews come in every six months for some, at least some simulator time. What I would do is two things. I would do that same pattern and just take a flight with a flight instructor every six months. And the other thing is just keep adding ratings. No matter what rating you get, it makes you a better pilot. If you'd like to sponsor our Soaring Safety segment, you can contact me at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Now back to our guests. Do you have a place in the world that you haven't soared yet that you really would like to go fly? Well, I guess New Zealand or the south of France. Those are the two widely considered to be the maybe the best terrains for soaring, other than maybe the Sierras. The Sierras are kind of limited because, you know, in those mountains, you can't really fly. They're just too deadly. So most of the soaring we do on the Sierras is just that eastern edge where it's the highest in this great, huge mountain wilderness to the west of there that almost nobody flies in gliders. So, yeah, about your answer to your question is in New Zealand. And what do you like about New Zealand that you've heard? Oh, uh, well, it's just uh, great flights. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, and it's probably out of print now, but it should be available somewhere, uh, Gladiators of the Sky, the first, uh, what do they call that? It's a new racing category, uh, Grand Prix where all the contestants start at once and they race each other head to head. And they had a movie about that, uh, that kind of competition in New Zealand. It was, I think, the best video I've ever seen about soaring. Dale, what is your club doing to promote soaring there at SoCal? Historically, my nearly 30 years, more than 30 years in, in the game, there's almost no way to promote it in, in, with normal advertising. And so I don't think we do any real advertising but we are involved with, uh, with the STEM program, school kids, and wounded warriors. Although there's a, there's a legal issue with the term wounded warriors. That's actually proprietary. But the people coming out of the hospitals in the L.A. area that have been wounded soldiers, uh, we do one day a month of just party for them. They can come up and fly for free and hang out all day. That's awesome. You know, I didn't get to experience that. I did get to experience the STEM program, and that was pretty exciting. But I would like to come back eventually in the future and see the program with the vets. That would be nice. Yeah, the first time we did one with them, um, I actually kind of dreaded it. I thought it might be a, an unpleasant experience, and it turned out to be uplifting and heartwarming. And those, those people, men and women, uh, appreciate it so much. And it's uh, 
it has a miraculous effect on some of them. But that's soaring for you. You know, soaring is a, a very therapeutic activity. Absolutely. Were you able to take some of the vets up then? Oh, yeah. That's, that's what we do. The, that day of the month is just all that. The only flights are vets going up. And we usually have uh, at least five gliders going full time. What was your experience taking some of those vets in the air? Oh, nothing uh, unusual, really. It's just uh, they seem to appreciate it more than the average uh, tourist. But uh, other than that, really nothing unusual. In some cases, you have to be very careful about their disabilities. But mostly that's not true. In fact, many, many of these wounded soldiers that we've dealt with don't show any apparent physical problem. Uh, either the problem is not obvious or it's a, a mental problem or a, a brain problem. But almost exclusively, they always really love it and want to do it again. That's awesome. Which comes back to my only flight that I ever, my only ride I ever took. Yeah, I wanted to do it again and did it about 30,000 times again. Wow. Dale, how can we be better and safer pilots in all your years of flying? How do you feel about that? Uh, okay, I have a good answer for that. It was not too long ago I took a uh, person up on his first flight, and it was really going to be his first lesson. He knew he was going to be a glider pilot, so it was his first lesson. And after that on the ground, he said, okay, I, I get it. I see what this is about. What should I be worried about? And when he asked me that, I'd never been asked that question. And I thought, well, taking off is dangerous. Landing's dangerous. Traffic's a problem. And I said, what you should be worried about is not thinking and not keeping up. So that's my answer. And that's what you need to do to keep it safe is think and don't fall behind. Absolutely. Some great advice. Would you like to give a shout out to anyone? And who would that be? Shout out to all my former students and uh, thank you and congratulations. Yeah, that's awesome that you've been able to be a part of that to teach people how to fly. Yeah, for me, it's never been an ego thing. I'm one of the few high-time pilots who virtually never flies alone because I'm not interested. I'm interested in flying with people and turning them onto it. Uh, in fact, at this point, I don't really care to fly anymore at all. I've, I've done that. But it's always delightful to go up with somebody and blow their mind and leave them with something that now they're hooked to it. Well, you know, obviously I've been in the air before and I fly here in the east, uh, mid-Atlantic, but I think I told you, but taking that flight in California, not being around big thermals and the, the big terrain, the mountains out there, flying over the desert, it did blow my mind. So, yeah, you, you got me. <laughs> it's That's very, very common. And uh, there's another thing I would say about that, too. Uh, for those of you who fly where it's not fantastic, well, it's still fantastic. It's just that the conditions aren't so easy and you have to, it's more on you to make it spectacular. I think people who fly here all the time take it for granted and they, they uh, begin to lose some of the, the joy just because they don't realize how special this place is or the whole, the whole Western U.S. It's not like we're uh, entitled, we're privileged. And uh, I, I think flying in weak conditions is uh, the, the way to get better. Yeah, you know, we do have to work for it here in the Mid-Atlantic on a lot of days. And then there's some days that are nice. We get, get blessed with some really great thermals. But, yeah, it definitely teaches you to how to work those small thermals. Well, it's important. And it's more fun. I actually enjoy flying here in the winter more because it's not so easy and it's more complicated and more of a challenge. Also, it's not hot. So I prefer winter conditions here just because of the variability. 
many times I've had people from like, either from your part of the country or maybe from Europe, experienced pilots take their first flight here. And after 45 minutes, they say, well, that's the best flight I ever had. That's just normal. And it's easy to get spoiled. So obviously there in California and, and the location you're in, you get thermals, you get some ridge lift, right? Yeah. The ridge here is not ideal because the ridge itself is not very uniform. It's, it's craggy, ir- irregular terrain. So the way I would advertise the ridge flying here is it's, it's a good place to learn treacherous ridge soaring. When I first came here, I was very used to flying extremely close to the terrain in, in the east, you know, well within a wingspan of the treetops. But uh, my first look at these mountains, I quadrupled my minimum distance from the hill until I knew it better. Yeah, not very forgiving. And I think that might have been the smartest thing I've ever done. So then you have the convergence coming in too, right, with the ocean? Well, yeah. The the whole game of what some people call shear line soaring, or just different air masses coming together, that's something I never saw back east. And uh, here it sometimes is the main menu. And it's uh, there's several varieties or many varieties of convergence or shear, uh, but it all amounts to different air air masses moving together, causing one to go up or maybe both to go up. And that whole family of lift is, uh, you could probably write a full book about just that kind of lift. Very interesting. In fact, my first, after my first season here, I commented to an old timer that I still feel like a beginner on shear lines. And his answer was, we're all beginners on a shear line. That made me think. What kind of elevation can you get off the shear line? Well, it depends on the shear. In some cases, it's all very low, and in some cases, it might go to 15,000 feet. So it's, uh, it's, it's up to the air. And because we're near the ocean, it's, it's big air, you know. One thing I've noticed, these shear lines always tend to migrate away from the ocean because that mass of air out there is so big, it's just always going to push. I mean, North America is a big place, but the Pacific Ocean is bigger. And that's where our energy comes from. Absolutely. Dale, is there anything else you'd like to add? I guess I should probably just uh, speak for my rather unique or at least unusual attitude about the whole sport. For me, it's always been about the joy of it. It's not about proving that I'm the best. Uh, I've never cared about how fast or how far I went. I just want to make sure I have every flight I break the record for most satisfaction for me or my client. And I'm probably the the poster boy for flying without electronics. To this day, I've never used a uh, even an audio variometer, much less a computer. I've proven that you don't need it. If you just look out the window and be a little sensitive, all the information's there. So yeah, that's, that's my, my main message to other glider pilots is shut the panel off and go fly. And I think you'll enjoy the experience more. Absolutely. On the rare occasion where I get someone who's used to using a panel, I get them to just cover it and ignore it. They admit, yeah, that was more fun. It was more fun. Yeah. Hmm. Who knew? Yeah, no distractions, right? Who, who would think? <laughs> well, yeah, that audio variometer to me is like having the phone ring all day and no one ever answers it. <laughs> it would drive me nuts. And I, I just never turn it on and don't have to deal with it. Now, what you'll notice is, when you fly into lift, it gets louder. When you fly into sync, it gets quieter. So you've got your audio right there. That's true. 
Seat of your pants flying good old stick and rudder. Yep. It's the only way I fly. Now, you could say, you could make the point that, well, I won't win a contest that way. Probably true. I won't win a contest that way. But uh, my best example of that is I came across one time, I was on a rare solo cross country, and I was just hugging the ground, flying just rock to rock, looking ahead and looking down at the, at the terrain. And uh, a call came on the radio. There was a guy above me. I had just come under him. He was 800 feet above me in a thermal. And he happened to be a record holder. He had a speed record on that terrain in that glider. And uh, we were going the same direction. So we kind of maintained contact. We started with him 800 feet above me. 60 miles later, we were in a thermal together again, but he wasn't above me anymore. So we'd gone 60 miles and I'd gained 800 feet on him. And he was using a computer and I, of course, wasn't. And that's kind of my case in point. So the whole time, I would be just, just bopping along the ground uh, at a moderate speed of maybe 70. And what he would do is thermal up very high and then glide at 100 knots to catch me. And he was always behind me, and he never passed me because I was looking ahead and just going straight. Consistent. Yeah, tortoise in the hair. That's right. But it's all about having fun. And if you need an audio variometer to have fun, good on you. Dale, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun speaking with you. Yep, same to you. And hopefully in the future I'll be able to get out there and get in the air with you again. That, that, was, that was fun. I hope so too. And thank you for joining us here for another guest here on Soaring the Sky. If you want to keep in touch with us on social media, you can do that. Michelle will have all that info for you. And if you can do me a favor, it helps the podcast out a lot. Leave us a review on iTunes. Happy soaring. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll catch you right here next time on Soaring the Sky. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Or you can send us a note on the website, soaringthesky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.